You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. Deepening Your Practice is recorded at the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society in Los Angeles, California. For more information, visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.mettagroup.org. So welcome everybody, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class and what that really means is that I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm just not going to give basic instruction. The class uh, is... um, organized around uh, going through this manual of insight, the, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text um, that uh, he wrote in a six-month period um, where he sort of did a data dump of all of the things about meditation that he knew. Um, <clears throat> tonight we're going to be talking about states of one-pointedness, which is the final part of the purification of mind chapter. So after tonight we'll be moving into a new chapter discussing conventional versus absolute realities from a a Buddhist uh, perspective. So if you have any questions about uh, purification of mind that are lingering, um, please feel free to ask them. When the obstacles to concentration have been overcome with the aforementioned six remedies, one's mind no longer returns to the past or anticipates the future. It is no longer shrinking or overactive. Rather, it is only noting the mental and physical phenomena that arise in the moment. The mind is completely purified of hindrances in insight. This is called one-pointedness. So what we're talking about is a concentrated mind where you can place your attention where you want to put it and it stays there and nothing pulls you out of that. I think probably most of you have had an experience of one-pointedness, where the mind settles and you can just bring your attention to something and your attention stays there. It isn't scooped up by something and carried off. When concentration is good, defilements cannot enter the noting mind, so the meditating mind does not mingle with any companions, that is to say, defilements. Therefore, this kind of concentration is called one-pointed. Ekagata is the Pali. It is comprised of only the meditating mind devoid of any defilement. Uh, The one-pointed mind is established and concentrated and not rooted in any of the defilements. So the defilements, um, the hindrances, uh, is the mind craving something different than what is? Is the mind aversive, not wanting what is? Is the mind restless and agitated? Is the mind uh, slothful, uh, filled with torpor? Is the mind filled with skeptical doubt. These are the the basic hindrances. So you've probably had the experience of these when you're meditating, and what we're talking about then in one-pointedness is the absence of them. But we're also talking about Karnaka Samadhi here. Karnaka Samadhi is the Pali. Uh, A translation might be uh, momentary concentration insight meditation. When we talk about this process in, say, if you went through a tranquility-based meditation approach where the purpose is to develop 
concentration first, to develop jhana first, and then enter into the path of insight practice from concentration. <clears throat> um, that would be a kind of conventional way of going. The difference between the two is that in Karnaka Samadhi, you begin with insight, so it's called the insight path. And what we're really talking about is in the moment of noting is the mind free of uh, the defilements, the hindrances. So in noting, you know where your awareness is and you soak in and have the experience of sensing. You know that's mind and then you sense that's body. So in the beginning, this first insight is around uh, developing uh, sensory clarity around what is the knowing part and what is the experience of sensing. Uh, you may remember the, the Buddha famously said in hearing there's only hearing, nothing heard and no one hearing. Do you know that? In seeing there's only seeing, nothing seen, no one seeing. There's only seeing. So you have the, the sensing capacity, which is the seeing aspect, and then you have the knowing what it is, which is the, the recognition of the pattern of it. Um, if there's no self present, there's no one seeing, right? It's simply a flow of sensing and knowing. And uh, if you don't fixate the sensing experience, it doesn't become anything. Um, trying to gauge, looking at you, whether this is more confusing or less confusing. <laughs> um, the mind is fully purified by overcoming these six, six obstacles and becomes one-pointed. What, what are the states of one-pointedness? One-pointedness based on contemplation of generosity, one-pointedness based on the tranquility meditation, one-pointedness one based on knowledge of dissolution, and one-pointedness based on knowledge of cessation. One-pointedness point, based on contemplation of generosity is for those contemplating generosity. One-pointedness based on tranquility meditation is for those who practice tranquility meditation. One-pointedness based on insight knowledge of dissolution is for those who develop insight. One-pointedness based on the knowledge of cessation is for those noble persons who realize nirvana. <clears throat> In some sense, these four descriptions of one-pointed uh, meditation describe the whole path of liberation. It, you... you um, may have heard me say that when you begin this path of meditation, uh, if the goal is liberation, then you make a decision to be a good person. And what I mean by that is you renounce the need for revenge. You renounce the need for compensation for every shitty thing that's ever happened to you. Um, and you make a decision to move in a direction of being ethical. Um, then you take up the practice of the uh, ethical training in Buddhism. For householders, it's typically five precepts. So you undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by killing. I'm doing a survey for a friend. All of the vegans here, raise your hand. 
<laughs> so how do you imagine the, the practice of undertaking the harm by not killing or not causing something to be killed? Seeing the whole picture of what um, the, the husbandry of animals is doing to the planet and our future capacity to survive here. <clears throat> anyway, that's my whole pitch on veganism. <clears throat> not to mention the physical health of the body. Wait a minute, I'm not finished. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a vegan. But uh, um, I, I want you to consider this, right? We make a decision to enter this path and then we're immediately presented with the precepts in which we're supposed to operate uh, and then how deeply do we actually go into this investigation to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm by taking what is not freely offered. So that's a stealing in some sense. But it could also be manipulation or it could be a, a power move. Uh, are you in relationships? Are you uh, taking from your, your partners in relationship what's freely offered or are you taking what you want? Is it mutual, a mutual beneficial thing, or do you just uh, hit and run, I guess is the term. So um, this is that, that investigation. Uh, to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through your sexual conduct. And this is, again, um, something to investigate. Do you um, have sex with consenting people, or do you not? Uh, do you have, uh, are you honest in the agreements that you make? Uh, people often require certain commitments in order to engage in a sexual relationship. Do you keep those commitments? People often make commitments to other people in sexual relationships. Do you honor those commitments that people have made to other people or do you jump on? Um, <clears throat> To undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through speech. This has always been the hardest one for me. Speech. To, uh, do you come from a, a, a practice of kindness in your speech? Um, do you use harsh words? Do you use divisive words? Do you... Uh, uh, are you authentic? Are you truthful? Are you manipulative and all of the other things that one can do with speech? And do you have this intention? We are all conditioned beings and so when we come to this practice we have prior conditioning. It isn't really possible ever to just make a decision about these things. Uh, if, it were, if it were possible to make the, a decision about this we would simply hear something once and decide it was a good idea and then be off in that direction with no residual uh, effect from what has happened before. So we actually grow all these things in their, they're residing in physical form in our head, in our brain and in order to move in the world in a different way we have to recondition the brain, we have to regrow the brain so that it functions differently. In the beginning, uh, when you believe in the solidness of self, you probably believe that you're originating your thoughts and you're originating your action from this place of the self, but that actually isn't an accurate 
a portrait of how it is. Almost all of the processing that you go through is unconscious and you're never informed of it. It's all based on your conditioning. And at the very last moment, the plan that's just about to happen is sent over to the conscious mind, not uh, for origination or initiation, but simply to stop it from happening if it turns out to be a bad idea. Have you ever stopped saying a sentence three words in because you know from looking at the person's reaction to the first three words that to continue could be life threatening? <laughs> Yours. So. Um, so, and then the last one is to refrain to undertake the practice to refrain from causing harm through imbibing intoxicants that might lead to heedlessness. Apparently, heedlessness is a very wide <laughs> <laughs> definition. My favorite is that if you're kidnapped, if they stake you down to the ground, if they force a funnel in your mouth and tape it off so you can't breathe and pour the beer in, then... It's okay. <laughs> you can have a cocktail. <laughs> How many is too much? Do you know what they, they say about drinking? That if you're female, because uh, female anatomy is different from male anatomy, one, one ounce of alcohol in a 24-hour period would be on this side of heedlessness and if you're male too. So just so that there's some baseline, I know. Um, the U.S. government defines chronic um, drinking, that's their highest level, they don't have alcohol, they just have chronic drinking, um, is uh, 58 ounces of alcohol per month for a male. So... You can maybe gauge that. When I heard that, I scoffed. I said, what, two and a half days of drinking? <laughs> so. <coughs> you make a decision to be a good person. You undertake the precepts. You undertake this, really this, this decision to be ethical in the world. Why is it important, do you think, to be ethical in the world if we're talking about liberation? And there may be many reasons why being ethical in the world might make sense. What we're really trying to do is quiet the mind so that we can investigate the absolute nature of, of being human. And if you're always looking over your shoulder because you're afraid that somebody's going to catch up to you, it's very distracting from the pursuit of really a deep understanding of the human condition. It's hard to settle in. It's hard to meet obligations. It's hard to, to uh, if you're not able to meet obligations, then to be resourced enough to actually have the time uh, to practice. And so to move into this place of settling into an ethical stance is, is the very beginning and then we come to this practice of generosity. That's the thing that follows undertaking 
um, an ethical training is the, the practice of generosity. Uh, one has attained this form of one-pointedness if when contemplating one's acts of generosity, one's concentration becomes so strong that one can turn the mind to nothing other than the offering one has performed. The noting mind no longer suffers interference from the mental defilements and becomes well-established in one-pointedness based on contemplation of generosity. <clears throat> so we typically talk about generosity in three levels. The first is to give what you have, what you are not attached to, and what you don't need for your survival. So we tend to be in a, a materially rich culture. We also have time, more time um, available to us if we were not in, say, a survival-only mode. Um, I had an interesting debate with a, a, document, a documentary filmmaker about time versus money in terms of addressing homelessness. Um, if somebody asks you for money, do you just give them the money? If a homeless person ex uh, is presenting themselves in need, is it simple to just pay them off, as he would say, or... Uh, to engage them with actual uh, care, those kinds of resources. Um, we all have limited, say, social capital. We all have limited financial capital, except for the eight people who own, uh, have as much wealth as the bottom half of the world. Did you see that in the paper? Eight people have as, much, as many assets as 3.4 billion people do. Um, so time money social position these are the things that matter to us in, in the human realm are you, where is your in, engagement of generosity around these do you give uh, money do you give time do you give access to people to your social network The first level, what you have, what you don't, uh, what you don't need for your survival, and what you're not attached to. The second level is to give what you have, what you are attached to, and you don't need for your survival. And the third is to give what you have, what you are attached to, and you need for your survival. It's very unusual to be asked to give at that level, and would you even consider doing it? Or for whom would you consider? Uh, risking your life. Uh, if you saw somebody standing in the street and they hadn't seen that a car was coming for them uh, and there was a slight possibility that you could run over and get them out of the way, for who would you do that? It's so something to consider. I, I guess most of the time, like all of these things, that whole process would be unconscious and you would be in action before you had time to contemplate it, to know. So it's very, off, it's very ordinary, I think, in a way, to, to uh, hear about a mother who, without even hesitating, swoops in to, to try and save their child. Um, would you do that for a lover or a loved one? Would you do that for a friend? Would you do that for uh, 
a stranger, where, what level would you consider that? And are you engaged in an activity of generosity ordinarily in your life? Um, in, in, if you read the or you listen to these instructions in order to contemplate generosity as a meditation practice, you have to be engaged in actions of generosity in order to have an object of meditation. Right? So if you're not actually engaged actively in the activity of generosity, you, have, you, you, you can't even begin this practice. I'll tell you what. I'll do. Um, I will give you money to give away. How's that? Um, I'm, I'll give you a dollar if you want. You don't have to do it. And then carry it around, engaged in the understanding that you have the activity of, of generosity to do. And then if this a situation arises where you could be generous, then you can give away the dollar. Understand that this is a tiny thing. It may be sitting with somebody and sharing a sandwich would be more, but just to prime the pump. Um, we live in a dangerous world, so don't put yourself in danger to do this. Be safe. But if you'd like to do it, um, I'll give you a buck. Hmm? Any questions? All right. Would you like? Let me start here. Would you like to take the generosity? Would you like to undertake the generosity test? Yes. Stamp them so you won't confuse them and spending much. I I uh, I haven't done it with the first dollar that you gave me. I was oh. at the class, on, so I think maybe I'll wait. <laughs> Would you? Yes. Yes. Sure. You can't give it to me or leave it in the gun bowl. That's the only <laughs> All right. If you come back next week uh, and tell me what happened, I'll give you another one. All right. <coughs> so, in this first part, if you look at this path to liberation, which is really what we're talking about, this entrance, entrance into the practice is through generosity. So you make this decision to begin the practice, you undertake the ethical training, which opens up the possibility for you to begin this practice of generosity. You begin the practice of generosity, and then you arrive at the place where concentration becomes the thing.
in developing uh, insight practice on your uh, concentration. Sorry, in developing uh, concentration on generosity. Um, you open the possibility to to jhana. One has attained this type of one-pointedness if, when developing tranquility meditation, one's meditation becomes so strong that it is experienced uh, that it experiences nothing other than the object of meditation. One's noting mind is no longer disturbed by the mental defilements and becomes well established in one-pointedness based on tranquility meditation, since the mind is solely focused on the the object of concentration, this one-pointedness, is a form of access concentration or absorption concentration. So on the tranquility side of practice, this coming into practicing with concentration, the first thing that you're trying to do is develop access concentration. And access concentration could be described pretty much as he said there, that you're able to place your attention on any object of meditation you choose and your mind settles in and is able to stay there in a one-pointed way without getting pulled out of it by any of the the defilements. So access concentration is called access concentration because from there you can access jhana or you can access insight practice. One-pointedness based on insight knowledge of dissolution once one... Uh, as an insight meditator attains insight knowledge that discerns mental and physical phenomena and one's concentration is well established, one begins to experience nothing but those mental and physical phenomena to the exclusion of other objects, such that other objects do not appear. One's noting mind becomes one-pointed and continuous without interfering, interference from hindering thoughts. From that time on, the noting mind is one-pointed and free from hindrances. From the stage when one attains insight knowledge of dissolution up to the stage of adaptation, the meditator especially experiences only phenomena characteristic by uh, only phenomena characteristic of disappearance every time one notes them. At this point, every noting mind is free from defilements and well-established in one-pointedness an insight meditation of dissolution. In other words, momentary concentration is well established because one experiences only the dissolution of phenomena. This is why Pali scriptures say that momentary concentration is fully mature at this stage of knowledge. This is very clear to yogis who have attained um, insight knowledge of dissolution. Um, we often call dissolution the point of no return. So little Toto runs across the uh, great cavernous hall and pulls back the curtain, and there you see the schlubby salesman controlling the terrible odds, right? Once you see into the nature of, of the human condition, you can't really unsee it. And it comes in uh, this stage around dissolution. If you look at the progress of insight, which is the, the commentary that Mahasi wrote on the 16 stages, you know, there's lots of lists in Buddhism, the 16 stages, which is a kind of uh, Dharma map, a description of how to get to enlightenment, a description of the insights that you need to be able to understand through direct experience that will lead you to 
liberation. Dissolution is the fifth stage, and it follows Nama Rupa, which is the first stage, which is what we've been talking about in terms of the separating knowing from uh, sensing or mental from physical. The second is uh, the second stage um, <coughs> is about um, noticing that the present moment sets the conditions for the moment that follows and that the previous moment had set the conditions for the present moment. So it's a conditionality. That without the conditions of the present moment, the next moment would not be possible. And without the next moment, the moment after that would not be possible. Uh, And one way to explore that would be, say, to notice where your awareness is in this moment So if you're listening to what I'm saying, some of your awareness is in auditory experience. I I was sitting um, recently, um, I was listening to someone talk, and then I heard the sound of a bird chirping. And then when my attention was drawn to the sound of a single bird chirping, I noticed that there were many birds chirping. so my attention, because it was in auditory thinking, because it was in auditory space, then was sensitive to the sound of a single bird chirping. And then when my mind focused it on the pattern of a bird chirp, then it recognized many birds chirping. And then there was an emotional response to the birds chirping, which brought me into the body, into the felt sense of that. And that memory caused uh, that... The emotional experience caused a memory to arise in visual thinking of previous times when I had uh, heard that sound from the past. And it was, it's possible then to notice that in each of those moments, the condition of the present moment made possible the sensing experience in the next moment. And it wasn't simply a random uh, uh, movement through experience that each one of those sensing experiences were required in order for that flow of sensing experience to happen. Um, there's a vast array of sensing experience that bombards us in each of each moment, and we don't experience all of it. We, we uh, experience a small part of it. And so to begin to sensitize yourself to these flows of attention, these, this movement of awareness, is that making sense? that description. Um, The third is to investigate the the three marks or the three characteristics of existence, uh, anatta, anicca, and and dukkha. So those are the Pali's. Uh, Anatta is not self, uh, anicca is impermanence, and dukkha is unsatisfactoriness. Do you have a sense of the solid self that's always there, that's in charge of everything, that's owning everything, that's causing everything, that's making all of the decisions? Um, And if you do, is it possible to investigate that? One of the ways that uh, insight meditation is good at investigating it is if you simply sit without directing your attention anywhere, what happens? I think what you'll notice is that your attention just moves around exploring things without you doing anything. If you don't intentionally do anything, experience still unfolds. Who then is sensing it? 
if you don't do anything, you'll notice that your attention, your awareness, moves in a flow of investigation. And if you're not doing it, who's doing it? This is the beginning of the exploration around self versus no self. Uh, uh, Nietzsche is uh, impermanence. Um, do you notice that nothing lasts? Nothing lasts. Could you find something that lasts? So in your exploration of sensing experience, you notice each thing begins, there's a middle, and then it ends. Each thing begins, there's a middle, and there's an end. This uh, illusion that things are continuous and ongoing comes from uh, noticing the arising, and as soon as one thing begins to fall away, jumping into another thing that's arising. And so this attention moving from arising to arising to arising to arising creates this experience of an ongoing, uh, single, continuous uh, world. But if you begin to pay attention to the passing away uh, and you turn your attention to any sensing experience, you realize that all sensing experiences arise and pass and nothing continues. And then the last one is um, unsatisfactoriness. We generally talk about that in three levels. The first is that you're in a, in a body which will grow old, get sick, and die. <clears throat> so um, some of you are young enough not to know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but you will. <laughs> you're lucky. <laughs> some of you already know what it's like to grow old. Um, maybe some of you have uh, illnesses that are... are difficult to manage. Uh, and then, uh, has anybody here never known anyone to die? So, then we've all known someone to die and what that's like. <clears throat> the fourth is uh, arising and passing. So the fourth stage of the progress of uh, inside of the 16 stages is around really investigating deeply into the nature of arising and passing. And when you begin to do that, it, it, this when turning your attention into every sense gate, there's an arising and passing of sensing, arising and passing of sensing. Gradually, the need to fixate everything into a solid form begins to fall away and you move into these flow states where everything dissolves into energy. Dissolution, the fifth stage, is when the flow state has gotten so intense that the edge of the body is lost, that the inside and the outside, the barrier between them dissolves, and you're simply in this deep flowing experience. Nothing is fixated. There's no experience of self, really. There's simply this flowing. If you were in that state and you were sitting in a chair, you would not be able to detect the chair differently than you detected the experience of the body. The visual experience, the auditory experience, and the felt sense of the body, uh, all of the barriers between them would dissolve and you wouldn't be able to detect uh, one from the other. This is called dissolution and it is a highly concentrated state. So if you were in the experience of dissolution, it could be said that you had uh, the 
one-pointedness of concentration on the object of dissolution. Dissolution lasts for however long it lasts, um, and then you get dumped out into what's called the knowledge of the miseries, which is three things. They're, in some sense, a reaction to Toto pulling the curtain back. You see through direct experience that there is no self, that the construction of self that that you've always known is simply another pattern of sensing experience like a chair. And when it's there, you recognize it, and when it isn't, you you see that it's not there. The the next one is uh, often translated as misery, and what it is is that you see that nothing lasts, and, and in seeing that nothing lasts, you know through direct experience that nothing can be relied on, nothing can be counted on, everything will be lost. And then the the next one is often translated as disgust, which is that you live in this body that will grow old, get sick and die, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's just the nature of the human condition. And depending um, on your conditioning, this can be a minor bump in the road, or it can be a complete undoing of of the way that you live your life. So... I find that in in my work as a meditation teacher that the people that live very authentically, this is not a big deal. And people who live inauthentically, everything begins to come apart. Mostly because you can't do the inauthentic anymore. So if you have set up your life to work with a lot of inauthenticity, and you can't do it anymore, it ruffles feathers everywhere. Everything starts to get rough. Uh-huh. Is um, losing one's identity, so to speak, a part of the miseries? In other words, having the experience of all the things you thought you wanted to lose your values, just realizing that they're part of this. Right, that's part of that's the thing that comes apart. If you create an identity based on your social position and you're inauthentic in that, you won't be able to do it anymore. And then what? You tend to lose your social position. Um, the way that you make money, uh, um, if you're very inauthentic in the way that you make money and then you can't be inauthentic anymore, that doesn't work so well anymore. Um, when this profound suffering that comes from this, if it is that, uh, causes you to be aware of this deep-held desire to be free of that suffering. And so if you fall into that current of the desire to be freed from suffering, you're pulled out of all of that into a place called reobservation, where you deeply integrate these the true nature of what it is to be human and then all of the new stuff that comes in is taken in through this place of uh, understanding of the true nature of things so you don't cling anymore because um, mm -hmm. how do I get to that like third (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I've never been good at uh, letting things go, but I have been pretty good at watching with equanimity as they've been ripped away. <laughs> so then you just try and hold on as, as hard as you can and then just watch them go. Nothing, nothing lasts, nothing can be held on to. It brings us, um, there's a point of, of um, nihilism versus engagement, which I think is worth considering. If you know that nothing lasts, then you might take a stance that therefore there's nothing really worth engaging in. I can get it, but I'm going to lose it. Um, maybe I won't get it. Maybe I'll have to put up with something I don't want. That's that third level of um, dukkha. Sorry, second level of dukkha. Um, You can withhold yourself from engaging in life. You're free to do it. And maybe you think that in withholding yourself from engaging in life, you're saving yourself pain. But you're going to lose it anyway. This is that deep understanding. Whether you engage it or you don't engage it, you're going to lose it. There's no way to hold on to it. So the only thing that you lose by not engaging in it that you might not have to lose is the experience of engaging. If you don't engage, you don't get the experience of engaging. You don't get that meaning out of that, that meaningfulness, those moments of uh, being connected, of of seeing somebody. I have a poem, maybe I can find it. Maybe not. I think that's the fun and permanence is the chase. <laughs> you know you're going to lose it. You right. Just keep chasing after it, you know? Right. I am. Um, Um, oops, not there. I might not be able to do it. Let's see here. the nature of impermanence. And now I know what most deeply connects us after that summer so many years ago and it wasn't and it isn't poetry although it is poetry and it isn't illness although we have that in common and it isn't Gratitude for every moment, even the terrifying ones, even the painful ones, though we are grateful. Then it isn't even death, though we're halfway through it, or even the way you describe the magnificence of being alive, catching a glimpse in the store window of your hair blowing, and chapped lips, though it is beautiful, it is. But it is that you are my friend out here on the far reaches of what humans can find out about each other. Mm. 
What's it like? Um, I know in my own life that I've had a lot of regret, and most of the regret, regret is about the things that you don't do, right? Remorse is about the things you do do. <laughs> that withholding, which was so a part of my early life, the not saying something, the not asking for something, the not engaging, um, became this burden of sadness of not having the experiences. Uh, so that the, the desire to uh, reserve myself from having to have the pain of rejection or having to have the pain of, of losing it was inescapable because it, it all was lost anyway, right? That the, that the, the pain that lasted was the pain of not engaging. So you can avoid that pain. You can avoid the pain of not engaging by engaging. And then uh, in your attempt to do that, you'll begin to see the conditioning that you have that prevents you from doing that. And then take those away through the practice so that you can begin then to be free in that moment. That's really what this... Uh, practice is about the freedom to be uh, f- authentic in each of the moments and to engage them. Um, when you come out of the reorganization, you come into a plane of, of equanimity. Uh, you see the experience of, of the human condition the way it is, you, you're engaging in the world. And uh, things come at, at come at you, and you have this capacity for equanimity that you may not have had before. And from this plane or this plateau of equanimity, uh, you'll have a sense of uh, the possibility of something big happening, a kind of pressure. Um, there was a student on my winter retreat which, who was in this stage, and she described. Uh, the experience as the flickering of awareness. Um, Some people will describe it as a pulsing impermanence of a pulsing impermanence of awareness. And then uh, from that possibility of something big happening, you'll know that cessation is about to happen and then it will happen and you will have no awareness because the description of cessation is the, the ending of awareness in that moment. And then that, that period of time where there's no awareness can vary quite a bit initially. And eventually as your practice deepens you'll, you'll become skillful enough to come and go from cessation whenever you want. Um, and then you'll come out of cessation and you'll know that you've had the experience of cessation and you'll know whether or not you've taken a path or not, whether you've had the experience of stream entry or second or third or fourth path. So uh, one-pointedness based on knowledge of cessation, at the peak of insight practice, the meditator realizes path knowledge and fruition knowledge. At that moment, the meditator experiences nothing but nirvana, all other conditioned mental and physical phenomena cease. For this reason we say that the mind that experiences path knowledge and fruition knowledge is well established in one-pointedness 
based on knowledge of cessation. This is perfectly clear to those who have experienced it. Using these explanations, one can clearly understand how an insight meditator must practice in order to fulfill the purification of mind and how this purification arises. Here ends chapter 2 regarding mental purification. So, sometimes people have the experience of dissolution and they think that they've arrived at cessation or they've arrived at liberation. Uh, They've arrived at stream entry and the main difference between the dissolution experience and the cessation experience is that awareness is continuous in dissolution and there's no actual cessation experience and you are dumped out of a dissolution into the dark night or into the knowledge of the miseries which is a very different place than when you come into uh, fruition knowledge and you come into path knowledge which is often described as um, intensely blissful. I would describe it as uh, the capacity for limitless compassion. Uh, so uh, the contrast between the knowledge of the miseries and <laughs> limitless compassion is huge, right? So unmistakable once you've had both of the experiences. And in the beginning, um, the first time you have dissolution, it can be quite, quite frightening. It's, that's probably the most common report, that, that, that it's so unsettling not to be able to actually touch into the experience of the body since you've always done it. You've always been able to rest on the solidity of your own body and not to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of people find quite, quite frightening. Uh, and so when you notice that in, in the beginning uh, that you're getting close to that happening and you become so frightened that the fear solidifies everything again. And so you acclimatize it. And with this, uh, the 16 stages or the progress of insight, uh, if you like to use it as a map, uh, the reason I like to use it as a map is because it's so... Um, similar to my own experience of practice that I don't have to translate anything. It just seems to be what happens. Um, it, you cycle and then come out. And then you begin another cycle and you come out. And then you begin another cycle and you come out. And so you're, uh, as uh, your practice matures, you're constantly in this cycle of moving from Nama Rupa in the beginning, uh, body-mind, through dissolution, through uh, cessation experiences. Uh In your experience, have you found this to be uh, universal for everybody? Wouldn't there be some variances? Well, you mean the map? Yeah. Um, These different stages that that people experience. I guess the easiest way to describe it is the map is not necessarily linear. Linear. It's described in monk speak in a very literal progression, but it may not be that. And it may not be the experience that you have, and there are many other maps than the Theravada map, you know, the Zen map or the Tibetan map, different Tibetan maps. Uh, they're all uh, a description of this this process, which is in some sense. I mean, you could correlate the Theravada map to the Zen map. 
they don't say in, in, in Zen that you're enlightened until you've reached the fourth stage, the arhatship. But they have other stages that are similar to the, the first three that are in the Theravada school. Um, uh -huh. Sorry, building on that with the Theravada model, where you have sort of progression of these states, it is possible to sort of find yourself kind of maybe leapfrogging or find yourself in a state that maybe you're not, let's say, prepared for because you haven't gone through a natural progression of things that would give you a certain skill set to handle what you're experiencing in that time. Does that make sense? Um, you know, I think that it's like conditioning. So you're drilling down. One layer, you just go right through, and then you hit a hard area, and then it takes much longer. And then you punch through that, and then you have two more that are pretty easy, and then you hit another one that's hard. Everybody's conditioning is different, so that the, the ease with which you can find the insight varies quite a bit. Everybody's uh, gripping on to these characteristics, the three characteristics. How tightly wrapped are you around the idea of self? You know, how tightly wrapped around are you on the, idea, on the idea that things are solid and reliable? Is your sense of safety really embedded in the idea that things will last and that people will be there? And How easily can you lose things? Might be a good way to examine it. Um, when you engage, you know, listen to pop music, I'm going to love you forever, you know. <laughs> We're really conditioned against the nature of the impermanence of all things, right? Um, start saving for retirement now! <laughs> um, so, what's your conditioning and how easy it is is for you to just come apart? How easy is it for you to lose things? You know, um, we organize our lives around our relationships, around our way of, of making our way in the world. So, how we make our money, um, or how we, the house we live in, or the neighborhood we live in. However, how oriented are you about having to be in the right zip code? Um, and then social position. We're social be beings. Every time you walk in a room, you look around and your mind is calculating your relative social position to this group. How'd you do? You know, um, I'm at the top of the heap. I'm at the bottom of the heap. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was in, on retreat, and uh, um, it's very common for people to say to me on retreat, they're the best-looking person here, <laughs> in, in my interviews with them. The Vipassana crush thing, have you heard about the Vipassana crush thing? Uh, at least two or three times on the retreat, somebody will say to me that that person is the best-looking person here, but they're never the same person. I mean, it's unusual for them to be the same person. So how can four people be the best-looking person on the retreat? Uh, and that's because our conditioning is all different, right? Who we think is uh, attractive is different based on our conditioning. 
Um, so uh, one guy said to me that, that, that this other guy was the best looking guy on the retreat and this other guy said to me, that's impossible. <laughs> He's better looking than that guy. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Who's attractive, right? Who glows? This is all conditioning. It isn't actually quantifiable in terms of, of a person. Mr. Universe? To some people, that might be true. To me, it looks it looks freakish, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <coughs> um, then the question is, what would you like to explore in meditation, knowing that you can explore something? And finishing my thought on loss. You organize your life around these three things, relationships, how you make your way in the world, and your social position. And if you lose it, you, you go into shock that you've lost it. I can't believe that happened. I didn't want that to happen. That shouldn't have happened. That's shock. And then you, you fall into protest, which is a kind of anger. There's no God, or there. Why would God do that? Or um, uh, I know it. Um, when my brother died, my older brother said to me, "I wish it had been you, instead." That's a protest thought, and uh, I had had the same thought about him. <laughs> it was fine because that's what happens. You want something else to have happened rather than the thing that happened. That's a protest thought. It's a kind of confused anger. Um, I knew from his expression that he didn't want me dead. He wanted my brother not to be dead. And he was trying to figure out what that would be. Um, And then you fall into this place of disorganization. It's a kind of hopeless sadness. What am I going to do now? I can't survive this loss. Uh, And then you begin to have these reorganizing thoughts. Well, they broke up with me, but I could go on a date with someone else. Or uh, I lost my house, I can get a new house. I lost my job, I can get a new job. I lost my group, I lost my position in my group, I can get a new group. That's what the reorganization thoughts are. And then you move in the direction of reorganizing. And when you've replaced the uh, relationship or the way of making your way in the world or your social position, then you've completed the grief cycle because you've moved back onto the path of your life. So in some sense, when we talk about all of these things, that's the nature of everything. So that uh, going in... Do you go into a situation and understand that you're going to lose it? In each moment of of experience with someone or something, it ends. Do you do you allow yourself that that pop of sadness that comes in each moment ending? Do you go in wide-eyed, knowing that? Uh, 
in almost all cases you're going to experience the loss of this thing that means so much to you and in going in does that enrich the meaning of the experience that you're having because then you're actually in that uh, you're in the experience of how it is actually so there's not that resistance to it there's not that clinging to it it's, there's a sense of freedom that comes in and then you can be fully authentic because you're not attempting to preserve something that can't be preserved anyway right speech don't forget right speech <laughs> So many people think that authentic means assholism. It doesn't. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm kind of in the mood for meta. What do you think? We could do some vipassana, but and of course. You can do whatever you want, since I can't see inside your head. So did the the idea of finding one-pointedness on any object make sense? easier tonight than just using the really simple phrase, may you be peaceful, to use the more complex phrases, may you be safe and protect from harm and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to attain one point of this. Good. Is there a reason for that? Um, more for my mind to do? Yeah, maybe. Good. So you just want to be able to stand on the riverbank and watch all of that flow by Mm -hmm. without getting pulled into the river. Right. And I think another way that I was getting pulled into the river, so to speak, was, uh, you know, it's in my mind. 
to be real specific. Mm-hmm. But that was just a function of, of the mind. It wasn't, you know, it, it was just more chatter, basically. Good. Anyone else? I'm, I'm certainly new to meditation in general. Uh, I can't help but feel a little bit with meta um, some notion of like um, like uh, Hallmark cards or like it's the notion of like if I'm practicing meta it's like I'm constantly thinking of a nice phrase to say to the person that I have as my intention and so with, with the notion of the Hallmark card it, it deteriorates from what I actually do consider to be a decent practice, but I'm trying to really recognize how to get past the sen- sentimentality uh, of it. The sentimentality uh, is the near enemy of metta. So you, you create a narrative that produces a feeling state in the body, but it takes you out of the present moment. The reason that, that the, the metta phrases that I offer are short and dry is so that they won't lead you into the sentimental side of it. So really the, the object is a concentration practice on the mind state of metta. So the first investigation is what is the mind state of metta and can you recognize it when it's there? And then if it is there, can you maintain it? Can you the, develop the capacity to just continuously maintain it? But, you know, may the bluebird of happiness, you know, shit on your head. <laughs> 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 or whatever phrase you find. Uh, so I don't think those feelings are right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sorry to be that kid in class. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. I would... You just said something that um, resonated with me. There would be these moments of where, like, my mind, it felt like I was, like, flying through the fog, and then the fog just went away. Mm-hmm. And how long did it last? Not very long. Okay. Yeah, pretty quick. Because it would, it would fog and clear, and then it would just go back down. And then the fog would clear, and it would go back down. It, wasn't, it, was, it was a combination of seeing things as they pass, and making an effort to get back to that place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you just come back. Yeah. Each time you notice the fog, you come out. See if you can come out of it. So when I was in Burma and I said to the Sado, well, I was thinking of using this phrase. He would say, the phrases don't matter. And then I would say, well, I was thinking of using this phrase. And he would say, the phrases don't matter. And then I would say, I thought of this great phrase that I want to use. And he would say, the phrases don't matter. They matter only in as much as they're reminding you of the practice you're doing that you want to really, the idea with this way of practicing metta is that you create a refuge of metta that you can withdraw your awareness into and be completely protected in this uh, mind state of metta, in this concentration around the mind state of metta, so that it makes you uh, capable of going deeply into insight practice, because insight practice often gets really difficult, and if you don't have a place 
that you can withdraw out of the difficulty to, it makes you timid in your exploration. So this is um, the, the, one of the dangers with the, the sentimental side of metta practices is it becomes a spiritual bypass. You create a sentimental experience and it masks the difficulty. So in this way of practicing, there's no masking. You're withdrawing into the, to the metta to settle the mind so that you can go right back into the Vipassana practice. That's, that's what I notice when I do it. I mean, because when you start, you have that kind of bunnies feeling of what you're trying to define. Right. But then what you notice is when you get into deeper concentration, and, you know, suddenly your legs disappear within your head. And metta is really a strength, strengthening practice. Like, you feel very strong. Like, you feel very kind of uh, stable. Like, when I start getting deeper into metta and then you go into Vipassana, it's just a stability practice, really. Because it can get really kind of scary. If you don't, if you're not feeling stable in yourself. So it's really identifying things. And usually when you do people, it's you're trying to remember what that feeling of stability or maybe even safety felt like. Mm-hmm. And that's why you use it with, like, a, a person. It's easy and it gets harder and harder and harder. And then at some point, it's just... You feel kind of rock-like. You can go through this thing. You don't feel anything. You just feel stable. And then you can go and discover. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a stability. It feels very like everything goes... And then it's very condenses. Mm-hmm. Very tightly. Thanks. Uh-huh. And this was a neck-up job that I right? Dry Yeah, really what you want to do is find the location in the head where you... S- where you tend to experience the mind state and then just focus there geographically and come into this place of concentration. It's kind of like, like in here, yeah? Yeah, I get it right here. I also have a visual reaction, but the visual reaction to it is not the object, just the, the felt sense of it. Right, that makes sense. All right, we're out of time. Oh, did you have... All right, let's, let's hear it. Okay, I'm trying to make it short. Um, this is kind of a question more for the, the Vipassana, um, but because I feel like I have chronic pain, and with Meta, it's a little bit easier for me to do it. Um, but I guess it would apply to anything where I have to be in the present moment and be in my body. And I'm struggling a little bit with the, the impermanence and everything because I, it's not impermanent. It's all the time. It's not episodic. It's just I have pain in my body all the time. Um, and it doesn't come and go. I mean, the one thing I've noticed is like, depending on what I'm paying attention to, you know, my attention can be more focused on, you know, the, the physical sensation um, or focused on something else. That's the only variation that I find. But I heard you tell somebody once something about lessening and something. So, with physical pain, there's the, the physical aspect of the pain, and then there's the emotional reaction, yeah. which can amp- tend to amplify it. Um, and, and sometimes there's a physical response of bracing against the pain, which also can tend to intensify it. So um, one way to work with pain is to do a scan of the body. So you scan it all the way down, noting is the pain clearly present, subtly present, or not present. So starting in your left foot, say, is the pain clearly present, subtly present, or not present in the left foot? 
and then in the left calf, and then in the left leg, and then the right foot, right calf, left right leg, and then in the left hand, left forearm, left, left arm, right hand, right forearm, right arm, then is it in the front of the torso, in the back of the torso, is it from the neck up. So then you have a three-dimensional graphing of the, the spread of the pain. And then you can sort of see that maybe it's intense locally and it has a rippling spread over the body, but it's not filling every inch of the body. So then you can do an equanimity practice moving toward focusing directly on the pain. If you can't find equanimity focusing directly on the pain, then you can focus near it. And if you can't find equanimity focusing near it, you can intentionally focus away. If the whole body is painful, then you can open your eyes and focus on, or focus on sound, but focus out of the body. Focus on visual experience outside of the body, or focus on sound away from the body. And then become very concentrated. So that will reduce the awareness of everything that isn't the object of meditation. It may be one of the reasons why metta is working. Um, clearly present, subtly present. So, oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, clearly present. Oh. Good. Thanks. Thanks. So this is deepening your practice. I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice, and one of them would be retreat practice. So I'm always advocating retreat practice. Um, I would recommend that everybody go on at least one week-long or longer residential retreat a year as part of your practice. We have some retreats coming up. Um, there's a weekend retreat with Mary Stancavage and Joanna Harper coming up. At Joshua retreats for women only. We have the Memorial Day retreat coming up. Um, and that's a four-day retreat out in Joshua Tree. I'm doing a, uh, I think it's 11-night retreat in New York State uh, at the same place you were at the Watershed Retreat Center. It's a lovely place in farm country in upstate New York. Um, I will be doing a summer retreat, although Zaka Lake unfortunately burned down. and what? It burnt down. What? <laughs> Impermanence. Impermanence. Yeah. The, there was a wildfire and it, it took the lodge out. So... They're not doing retreats. They're not doing uh, extended retreats there because you have to bring all your prepared food. So they're only doing weekends. And there's no place to cook. But we could do a raw vegan uh, <laughs> <laughs> retreat. Um, so we're looking for another spot. But I'll do a summer retreat. And then uh, the, there's an East Coast ATS retreat uh, I'm, I'm, if I do well with the spring retreat we'll do a, a fall retreat in New York and then I'll do the winter retreat again up at uh, maybe up at La Casa anyway uh, we're not the only place in town there are lots of different places offering retreats so uh, figure out uh, you know everybody's uh, resources are different where and 
when you can go uh, sign up for it, pay for it, tell everyone you know that you're going on this retreat so that if you chicken out, there'll be uh, a big loss of social status. <laughs> but get yourself to go on retreat so that you can have that experience. If you haven't ever been on retreat, uh, maybe do one of the shorter retreats, uh, the Memorial Day retreat out here for four days so that you can get a taste of what it's like to be on retreat. Most people have a difficulty with the silence because we're used to engaging people for reassurance in social groups and uh, also emotionally regulating. So um, there, we know that and, and have ways of dealing with it on retreat so it, it won't be so difficult. Um, there are a bunch of flyers up there for, the, for different classes that are coming up. Take a look at those. Maybe do a day along or something. Um, see if you can keep up a daily practice. I do a, a guided conference call uh, every morning at 7.30, Monday through sun, Saturday. Um, if you want to uh, find out about it, it's on my website, metagroup.org. Um, you know, meditation is very powerful, it's very transformative, but it's only that way if you meditate. If you don't meditate, it doesn't really help. So the idea is to, to be cunning with yourself and get yourself to sit regularly. And the morning meditation is designed to get you sitting uh, regularly. I am also an ardent advocate of meditation centers. Uh, Vipassana practice can often get challenging, often get difficult, and it's nice to have sangha. It's nice to have people that you can actually talk to about your meditation practice. Uh, what better place to meet people to talk about your meditation practice with than at a meditation center? In order for us to have a meditation center, we, we, we need to rely on your acts of generosity. I know that we've been here a long time and you may think that we'll be here forever, but I, I can assure you that uh, everything is impermanent. <laughs> and uh, the finances of meditation centers are always precarious. Uh, we've crunched the numbers. We think $15 is a good amount for people each time they come. But really, this is the practice of generosity. This is the opening of the path itself. Uh, if you're a resource better than $15, and so $15 doesn't really mean much to you, then give it a level that has some meaning to you. If $15 is a good amount, give it that level. If it's too much, give it a level that, that is uh, commiserate with your resources. If you don't have resources right now, please understand that we as a community are very happy to provide uh, the space. Um, so cards and cash, if you'd also be so kind as to put the chairs back and the cushions away, that's also appreciated. We'll see you next time. Thanks.